It's always strange coming here and um, getting introductions like that because um, I normally say that uh, it's the people who don't know me who find me impressive. Um, and because it just is the fact that it's easy to be, um, kind of to have a reputation, isn't it? To, when you just fly in somewhere, fly out. And, uh, and, and I don't want to, I, would, I don't want to speak as it were from a global platform. Uh, this afternoon, I want to I want to share something that is very dear and near to my heart, and it's been a a conviction that has, uh, rather than diminishing as the years have gone on, is has just intensified. Uh, so please don't sit there expecting this to be a a, a polished uh, rhetorical flourish. Uh, it certainly isn't going to be that. Um, I, I have notes. I'm not sure to what extent I'm going to stick with them uh, because I really do want to just share with you what I think is a real um, kind of pressure uh, on, on, on my heart. But let me begin with uh, making clear a couple of assumptions that I'm making in this talk. Um, the first assumption is that um, as I talk on developing a, a missional culture, um, anyway, my, the first assumption I'm making is that the Bible as uh, the Word of God is the primary means by which the Spirit of God um, works in the lives of the people of God. Okay, that's, that's an assumption that I'm assuming that we share, that the Bible as the Word of God is the primary means by which the, 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 the Spirit of God works in the lives of the people of God. Um, and therefore, if that's the case, then the Bible is the critical factor when it comes to developing, nurturing, sustaining a missional culture in our churches, for our churches to be truly missional. Okay? You know where I'm coming from then. The second assumption uh, is the reason why that first assumption is possible is because of a conviction that I have that the Bible is a missional text. That is all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It is all about mission. Um, so it isn't a case of finding a proof text, kind of scurrying around in the Bible, kind of turning the pages, desperately trying to find somewhere where Paul tells us to go out and evangelize in some particular way, but much rather that as you read the Bible as a coherent whole, that it, you, we discover that it is missional, that it reflects God's heart. Because God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for uh, having a people for himself. So, so what I want to do, uh, I've got three ways of reading the Bible. Um, three kind of approaches to it that expose this, this missional heartbeat. And I think all three of them are very important, vital in fact, if we're to really see a missional culture develop in our churches and be sustained in our churches. And I want to be as practical as possible. And I want to speak as directly as possible into uh, the situation, not that you face here in Houston in the United States, but which we face and particularly in the Western world. Because I'm from England, your problem is our problem too. And I think it's a very real problem that I'm not sure that we take seriously enough. But that will come out at some point, I'm sure. So I've got these three principles. One is called the formal principle. Two is called the material principle. Three is called the existential principle. I'm going to look at number two, uh, but I'll mention one and three. Okay, so the first one, the formal principle. Now in theology, 
uh, the formal principle is a statement regarding its, its source of authority. And so the, the, the formal principle of evangelicalism, if you like, is the Bible. But how do we read the Bible? Well, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with creation for redemption. Um, but last time I was here, which was a few years ago, I unpacked, and I'm not going to unpack them in any detail this morning, um, a, a, another kind of framework related but developed that, uh, and it's called uh, creation, re decreation, recreation, new creation. So as I'm reading the Bible, I'm, I'm reading it, at the, the, seeing this framework in which it expounds the theme of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, it moves into the realm of decreation. And decreation is uh, not a word that I've coined. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, coined it many, many years ago. Um, but it's a, I think it's a word that's better than the word fall. Uh, the word fall, I think, is slightly, although it's so tried and trusted, it's slightly anemic. Um, decreation, I think, captures the sat satanic intent to unravel, undo all of God's uh, doing in creation. Um, and so the, the story from Genesis 3 onward is about decreation. But in that decreation, it never loses sight of creation, Genesis 1 to 2, which are the foundational texts of the scripture, the narrative. And then, as, it's, as it tells the story of decreation, where we see the story of sin and brokenness and, and, and the de defaming, defacing of God's character and God's image, it's building towards and, and, and moving towards recreation, which comes gloriously in the work of Jesus Christ. He comes to recreate, to undo all of Satan's undoing. And, and as he does that, Genesis 1 and 2 is his primary missional text, if you like. And he, and he undoes all of Satan's undoing. And as he does that, he points forward to the new creation, which is the fulfillment of all things. So those are the, that, that's the formal principle. Creation, decreation, recreation, new creation. And uh, as I said, I, I've, I've dealt with that uh, on a previous visit. Many of you were, weren't here. Um, and even if you were, you probably won't remember it. But that's okay. I don't have time to deal with that now. If you want to talk to me about it after, I'll be very happy to. If we have a time for q and I'll be very happy to develop it a little bit more. Um, so that's principle one. The second second one is the existential principle. Um, and this is simply to say that the Bible really can be summed up in just two words. And that might sound a very strange uh, claim, but I think it can. Trust me, that is God's command and God's invitation to this broken world is trust me. If you read the Bible and see, okay, what is God saying to Adam and Eve? He's saying, trust me in Genesis 2. They failed to trust him. What is he saying to Noah when he asked him to build that ark? He's saying, trust me. What is he saying to Abraham when he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees? He's saying, trust me. What is he saying when he calls him to offer his son? He's saying, trust me. What is he saying to Moses, to Israel, to the prophets, to the kings? He's saying, trust me. What is he saying to the people? When and they go off into exile, are taken into exile. He's saying to them then, trust me, because my purposes are not thwarted. My purposes, uh, my, my promises will not be nullified. You can trust me in this. 
And so in the person of Jesus, he fulfills his promises, but supremely through somebody who not only died our death, but lived our life. And in that life, what did he do but trust his father? At every point, at every turn, at every juncture, he supremely, gloriously trusted his father, didn't he? And he showed us how we should live. But he also, but he lived that life that we should have lived. And because he so trusted his father, that's why his death was so effective and was a death that we should have died, but was effective for us. So when the spirit comes, it is given in Pentecost uh, fullness, then the life of the church is one of simple trust, whereby we truly imitate being in Christ the Savior. And in every circumstance of our life, God is saying to us, trust me. I'm your father. Trust me. It's a a glorious way to read the Bible. And vital. Now both of these, one and three, formal principle, existential principle, are critical if we are to help people understand what it means to live missionally, live in dependence upon God, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is a key text. And we'll come back to that in a moment or two. Okay, with me so far? This is about developing, sustaining, nurturing a, a, a missional culture. So let me talk about a more length the material principle. Now the material principle in theology is it's central, it's core teaching. And this is my claim. The central message of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is that this. God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself. A people that he reveals his glory to and a people that he displays his glory through. Okay? God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself. A people that he reveals his glory to and a people that he displays his glory through. Now let me just pause and tell you why this is, this is the point where my burden becomes kind of exposed. Now, I have the privilege of being 60 years old uh, a week on Saturday. And uh, I can testify, I've walked with the Lord for 50 years, and uh, I've maintained that walk because of the Lord's faithfulness to me, not because of my faithfulness to him. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for those 50 years of, uh, of, of life, of uh, being a child of God, of, of growing in my understanding of Christ and all that he is, all that he's done for us, all that we are in him. Um, but in those 50 years, you, it won't surprise you to hear that I've, I've had a few knocks, a few disappointments, a few heartbreaks. I've, I've, I've hurt a number of people. I've been hurt by a number of people. Um, that life's had its ups and it's had its downs. Like all of our lives, that's just the very nature of living in this, this world that is still defined by decreation, isn't it? Even though we live as part of God's recreation as we wait for the new creation. And, and, and I can honestly say that it was as a teenager that my, my sense of God's people really, really started to be, 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 be nurtured. That it wasn't just about me. I remember uh, my youth leader saying to me on one occasion, and, and his motive was good and right, and he said this, Steve, if, if you were the only sinner who ever lived, Christ would have died for you. And he was trying to encourage me, but I remember even back then, I thought, but how do you know that? 
Seriously, how did he know that? Now, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the knowledge, the learning, the experience to be able to kind of push back at all. But, but it, and his motivation was all good, but the Bible never shows that, does it? And yet, what he did as a child of his culture was truncate the work of God so that it was almost exclusively focused in on me as an individual. Now, if that was true back then, which was individualism, then it is even more true today. And this is the problem. It is impossible, truly impossible, to overstate the toxic effect of individualism upon our experience of the Christian life, upon our understanding of the gospel. It is impossible to overstate it, the, the, the toxic effect. Because individualism as a cultural norm, expressive individualism as it is called now, that is this creed by which our culture lives, that, that I have the, the right, I have the, the, the need to be whoever, whatever I want to be, whenever I want to be it, that that, that, that creed by which we live as a culture, it completely undermines our true identity in Christ. And here's the problem. The church, rather than confront that and rebuke that, has always had a tendency to facilitate it and resource it. We pamper to it. Now, I wish I had time to show you from the Bible, because this really does go all the way back to Genesis. What we find going on in Genesis 3 is what we might call expressive individualism. But it was certainly the breaking of the relationship between uh, the alienation that occurred there between Adam and Eve and between uh, the, the, the man and woman and God and between the man and woman and their, their created world. It was certainly that. But it was this individualism. But what our culture has done, and I'd love also to take you through history and to show you how in the different epochs of, of, of world culture it, uh, it has happened in the Western world taking you back to pre-enlightenment, bringing you through the enlightenment and into the Reformation period. And how the Reformation, which, and this is the moment of the 500-year celebration of that, October 31st, isn't it? When Luther nailed it uh, there on the, that door in, in Wittenberg. And how even the Reformation was influenced by the enlightenment, which put the individual at the very heart of the things. And how, how, how that enlightenment kind of took that, the Renaissance, sorry, and how the enlightenment took that and developed that, and, and that, great, that, that, that great creed, I think, therefore, I am. And, and the individual became the means by which we judge all life and we judge all truth. The bar of all is my reason. And, and it's crazy, but that is what happened until we get the, the mess where we are now. And the church, which has not confronted, rebuked it, but rather has facilitated and served it. Now, I've been this Christian for 50 years. This, this thing has been burning in my heart. And at times, I would lie if I tell you that I haven't grown weary of it. I haven't grown weary of this, this sense that the Bible is actually about God's desire to have a people. Not just me as an individual. Not just a bunch of disconnected individuals. But a people for himself. 
where where God's glory is seen, yes, in that he saves me as an individual, but he doesn't just save me to to remain as that individual, but in incorporating me into his son, into Christ, he incorporates me into his people, his church. And that's where I find my true identity, in that glorious corporate, in that corporate reality. Because God's purpose has been to have a people for himself a people that he reveals his glory to. And that's where the Bible story really comes into its own, doesn't it? And if you want to help people to to understand who we are as the church and the missional nature of the church, we have to help them see the corporate reality of who we are. That is God's people to whom he has revealed his glory, through whom he wants to display his glory to the world. Now, how do we know? Let's kind of try and break those down just uh, one by one, quite briefly. How do we know that God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself? Well, the first indication of that is that he didn't just make an individual. He made Adam and Eve. And if you go back in your Bible, in fact, let's be radical. Let's go back to Genesis 1. And we can see that for ourselves. Now, look, I appreciate that I'm off script here. So if somebody is trying to No, they're not. I thought if they're trying to do a PowerPoint, then they've got horribly lost. And my apologies at the back. Uh, But sometimes you just got to go for it. Josh gets me a stand for the mic, and then I really get going. Blame Josh. Um, So have a look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is, if you like, the great thesis statement, isn't it? That that it is man and woman together who bear that image of God. That's why in Genesis chapter 2, we find that it's in the solitary Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Why? Because as that solitary individual, he is incapable of imaging the God who said, let us make man in our image. Now, that's only a hint of that great, that great truth of the Trinity, but it's there and it gets developed and expanded through the Scriptures. But he says it's not good for man to be alone because he's incapable of doing that. It's Adam and Eve together who can display my image. It's Adam and Eve together who, who will be given this, this mandate, this cultural mandate to go, subdue, and fill. That's how we know that God wanted a people. Because right back there in Genesis chapter 1, it's to Adam and Eve that he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's purpose was always to have a people who fill the earth. That's glorious, isn't it? Now, if that was God's purpose back then, you know that when God goes about undoing Satan's undoing, in, in the great work of recreation is of Christ, it's not just going to be to have bunches of it or, or in disconnected individuals scattered over the planet. But it's to be have a people who fill the earth. And, and, and in that filling the earth, the earth is subdued and the earth displays its glory as God intended it to be displayed. So God's purpose is to have a people. And we know that further because when God rescued uh, uh, Noah, he didn't just rescue Noah. He rescued Noah and his family. 
so that his three sons could, could, could have a line and there would be a righteous line. And we know that God's desire was always to have a people because when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and this is another key text, isn't it? Missional text in Genesis chapter 12. What did he say to him? He said, go from your country and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So even in Abraham... It was God's desire to have a people for himself. And that's why God takes his people into Egypt, so that they might flourish. And there they, they might flourish against all the odds, because this could only be seen as God's doing. And so he rescued his people, his entire people, out of Egypt, so that this would only be God's doing too. And he took them to Sinai and he made a covenant with them through Moses, but it was with them as a people so that they would be a nation among the nations, a people of God's own possession. And all the laws that he gave them, all 613 of those commands were intended to establish them as a distinct holy nation, a priesthood, a holy priesthood. And then he takes them from there and he takes that whole people. Not only did he bring them over the river, the, the, the Red Sea, he brought them over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And they displaced the other nations there. So that God, in acting in grace and judgment, would have a people for himself. And then he, even when he takes them into exile, he intends to bring them back. And he brings them back as a people. And he establishes them again in the promised land. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, it's never just a solitary Jesus, is it? You read Mark's gospel, what's the first thing that he does? He goes, he preaches, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here, because I'm here. And what does he do? He calls his disciples. Because his purpose is to have a people for himself. And he, and, he, and he models that community among not only the apostles, but also the wider community. So that when we find the day of Pentecost, it's 120 people who are gathered there that the Spirit comes and blows among. And then the mighty works of God are declared and people hear it and 3,000 are converted. And what does Luke go on to tell us? He, why is he so obsessed with numbers in those early chapters of the book of Acts? Because God's purpose is to have a people for himself. That's why. And he wants them to show that although Israel were blessed and, 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 and multiplied, the church and the power of the Spirit through the gospel is, is that which grows exponentially. 3,000, 5,000, too many to count. People in homes all over Jerusalem and then eventually all over the Mediterranean, all over the world because God's purpose has been to have a people for himself. And then what do we find at the end of the book of the, the Bible, the book of Revelation? Well, this is just a glorious passage, isn't it? Uh, and, and turn to it, please. It's, uh, it's Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What a great sight that must have been. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. You have different images there, don't you? New heaven, new earth, that, that new reality, gloriously compressed, as it were, in all of its fullness. 
That's the first one. You have the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You have a bride adorned for a husband. And you have the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Four images. All four images are images for the church. Because God said to Adam and Eve all those centuries before in Genesis 1, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, what does God do? He's filled the earth and subdued it. And it's filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as a waters cover the sea. That's why there's no sea. As the waters cover the sea, because his people fill the earth. His people are this new creation. You see, God's purpose has always been to have a people. So my individual story of salvation fits into that. I can only understand what God is doing in my life when I understand what God is doing in this big picture to have a people for himself. And that doesn't impoverish my experience, it gloriously enriches it. If you make the gospel primarily, exclusively all about me, in your preaching, in your teaching, then you, 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 impoverish, you impoverish what God is doing. You, 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 you shrink it. You kind of just shrink wrap it so it becomes something that is small and tiny and puny and ineffective. It's certainly not a gospel that can be this glorious image in Revelation 21 that can fulfill that great mandate in Genesis chapter 1. So God's purpose is to have a people for himself. Okay, that's the first part. The second part, that he reveals his glory to. So what is God doing all the way through the Bible story, but revealing his glory to his people, isn't he? And isn't it a beautiful, beautiful display of his glory? So let's, let's have a look in Genesis 2. God, God creates this beautiful world, and he's revealing his glory. That it's a good world, isn't it? And then he, he sees Adam alone, and he says it's not good for Adam to be alone, so he makes him Eve. That, that's his glory. <clears throat> then like a, a, a loving father, he presents Eve to, to Adam and says, be fruitful and multiply. This is God's glory. But then look at Genesis 3. Because for all the darkness and, and, and all the, the brokenness of this chapter, we see God's glory emanating from its pages. What happens when Adam and Eve have disobeyed God? They've eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, verse 8 tells us, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that phrase, the cool of the day, is actually the reference to the word spirit, ruach, which is uh, a word that we uh, were introduced to back in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. The spirit of God was hovering over so it isn't that this was God's daily routine to come down, have a stroll in the garden with Adam and Eve where they kind of chew the fat, enjoy the, uh, the evening. No, that the Spirit of God blows and the person of God himself is there. And uh, he's displaying his glory. Why? Because at this moment of sin, at this moment of profound alienation and decreation, he comes in judgment, yes, for sure, but grace, glorious grace. He reveals his glory. Though you disobeyed me, though you will experience death, even as I said that you will, yet I am coming to tell you that I'm going to send somebody who will crush the serpent's head. And he comes to save. His purposes are not over. He reveals his glory. 
And what does he do in in the story of Abraham? He keeps revealing his glory, doesn't he? In Genesis 15, that moment of justification by faith, he reveals his glory. What does he do on the mount as he's about to sacrifice his son? God reveals his glory. What does he do to Moses on Sinai? He reveals his glory. Uh, What does he do when he calls them back there and he reveals his glory? And all the way through, we keep finding God revealing his glory to his people. In calling them as his people, he reveals his glory. And that's a glorious scene. Trace it throughout the Bible. You find it in the tabernacle. You find it in the temple. You find it at every point, God revealing his glory. And what is his glory? It's a great, his chief glory is a grace that he extends to sinners. God graciously pursuing, God graciously forgiving. So God's purpose is to have a people for himself that he reveals his glory to. In the coming of Jesus, we see the glory of God revealed in glorious technicolor, don't we? It's as though the veil is just kind of pulled back and the blinding Shekinah glory of God is revealed in the person of Christ. God with us. That's where it is. And Jesus, as he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, as he forgives the sinner, as he calms the storm, as he feeds the hungry, as he rebukes the sinner, as he he teaches the truth of the gospel, as he calls people to follow him, he's revealing the nature and the character of God. And then supremely, as he hangs upon that cross, that's where we come face to face with God in all of his glory, because this is the God that we worship. The crucified God. A God who will go to any length in order to have this people for himself. And what a glorious picture it is. So then every time the gospel of that Christ crucified is preached, every time the Spirit works so that eyes are opened, dead ears are unstopped, and new hearts are given, the glory of God is revealed. And what a glorious image that is. You'll know the passage well, won't you, in... uh, in 2 Corinthians, um, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right back there in Genesis 1 where he revealed his glory, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he reveals his glory. What a beautiful picture. That's what he does. What's he doing in in, in the book of Revelation? In chapter chapter 4 and 5, he's revealing his glory. What's he doing in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22? He's revealing his glory. Because it's all about his glory, isn't it? And he so graciously condescends to reveal it to us as his people. But he reveals it to his people. Because God's purpose has been to have a people for himself. The people that he reveals his glory to. And then the third element, and please turn to 1 Peter for this, is that he displays his glory through. Now, I'm pretty sure if we just stayed at those first two elements, we'd be content. But they're not sufficient if you really want to unpack and create and nurture a a, a missional culture. This third element is absolutely vital. Because the first two on their own, taken in isolation, could actually feed this individualism that is the God of our culture and the the, the altar at which we worship. 
But the third one takes it onto another realm, doesn't it? Into another realm, onto another level. God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself, a people that he reveals his glory to, but a people that he displays his glory through. Why did God choose Israel? Not so that they could just kind of bathe in in his revelation of his glory and enjoy it for themselves. No, so that they might be a blessing to the nations, so that they might be a kingdom of priests to bless the nations. That's why. That was always why. And we know that from so many kind of elements within the Old Testament narratives, like the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, like like Jonah being sent to Nineveh, to name just uh, a couple of them. But these are just snapshots. We see that too in the the birth narrative of Jesus when, when, when the wise men come from the east. It's just a snapshot of God's glory being for the nations. That not only does he want a people that he reveals his glory to, but one that he displays his glory through. And we see that gloriously in 1 Peter 9. Now what is happening in 1 Peter 9? In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to groups of Christians, also known as churches, scattered around Asia Minor. They're on the margins of the Roman Empire, but these Christians, these churches are on the margins of society. Okay? They're, they're, they're isolated. They're beginning to feel the pressure. They're beginning to, to feel the hostility of their world. Now, we're beginning to feel something of that, aren't we? It's, it's coming a lot later for you as a, as, as a country than it, than it is for us in, in Europe, but it's coming at quite a pace for you. It's no longer a culture as culturally acceptable to be a Christian as it used to be. Well, I want to tell you, that don't fret about that. Don't worry about that. Don't be alarmed about that because it's the margins of society where God's people have always been called to be. Because it's from there where we have no power, no influence, that God works his power and extends his influence. So all the glory goes to him. This kind of Christendom model that we've lived under for so long is a historical and a theological anomaly. No, and these churches were scattered and marginalized. And to each of these small churches, household churches, this is what God, through his servant Peter, says to them. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Those are all images that are just snatched from out of the Old Testament that were applied to the entire nation of Israel and now are applied to these small, disparate communities of his people, these local churches, scattered, marginalized, fragile, vulnerable. This is who you are, he says. A people for his own possession. So that, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there you have it. So that. And that's what we've got to preach, brothers. So that. That's what we've got to teach and disciple others in, brothers and sisters, in our churches. The so that. So this is who you are, so that, this is why, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Because God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself, one that he reveals his glory to, but two, that he displays his glory through. That's the missional nature of the church. 
And it's our job, those of us who are church planters, church leaders, to so teach and preach and disciple and lead so that our people understand this. So that they see it as a glorious vision that they get drawn to, drawn by, uh, so that they get intoxicated with it, excited by it. And if necessary, like Luther with the gospel, we have to bang it into their heads. It's the so that. God's purpose to have a people for himself, those that he reveals his glory to, is so that they might display his glory to the world. We are missional by our very nature. So how do we preach, how do we preach and teach in the so that? Because that is the key to create, sustain, nurture, and a flourishing missional identity. Well, let me give you five very simple things that I use all the time. Well, first of all, you've got to preach it and teach it. That's what you've got to do. You've got to preach and teach it. It's got to be your melodic line. You know what a melodic line is in a piece of music? That for all the variations where it takes us, say, in a great symphony, this is the line that is sustained, that we keep coming back to. And, and, and as the music drops off, it then rises to it. As it crescendo, it goes back to it. This is the line that you can trace. Well, this is the line. This is what we've got to be preaching and teaching. That as you, as, as you open the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as you say, um, erroneously. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry, so, sorry for presuming that me as an Englishman knows how to speak English better than you. <laughs> I'm, I'm only kidding, really, seriously. Um, so, um, oh, that's just thrown me. Oh yeah, Habakkuk. As you're preaching Habakkuk, um, that, that's, what, that's what you've got to be preaching. What, what, what is God doing in there? Well, it's about his people, isn't it? It's not just about from fear to faith, trusting God in the midst of uncertainty. It's no, no, it's Habakkuk knowing that when the unthinkable was about to happen, God's purpose for his people would not be obliterated. It wasn't that the individual, that he as an individual would somehow not be swept away, but that God's purpose in his people would not vanish. So he says right at the end, though the fig tree does not blossom, there be no, no fruit on the vine, though there be no, 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 no sheep in the soil, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because I know that God will fulfill his purpose to have a people for himself, one that he reveals his glory to and one through whom he will display his glory through. When you preach the Psalms, that's going to be the melodic line. When you get into the epistles, that's going to be the melodic line. God's purpose to have a people. The Sermon on the Mount. You find some great expositions by some great men of God on the Sermon on the Mount whose only flaw is that they so individualize it. When it is about God having Jesus calling a city on a hill that displays his glory to the world. It was Francis Schaeffer, and if you haven't read much of Francis Schaeffer, I can only encourage you to do so, but it's Francis Schaeffer who said, the world can dismiss a solitary Christian as just a cranky individual and an eccentric, but you get a group of people, albeit a small one, of different, different colors, different backgrounds, different personalities, different abilities. You get them together, loving one another, and that's an unanswerable argument. And it's true, isn't it? It's gloriously true. 
So you preach and teach. So you don't just bring the Bible to bear upon our own individual discipleship, as important that is, but you bring it to bear upon the church. So that each Sunday, you are, you are saying to the church, Lord, please, you're saying to the Lord, Lord, please give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's the key. So you preach it and teach it. Secondly, you, you, you pray and sing it. And what I mean by that is you don't merely pray for it, but you pray it into existence. That you lead people in praying this, this, this glorious reality of God's purpose for a people that he reveals his glory to, displays his glory through. You shape your prayers around it. You invest as much in your prayer meetings as you do in your Sunday gathering in terms of time, in terms of preparation. You train your people to pray this great corporate prayer. This great, you pray them to pray your ecclesiology. And if you don't have an ecclesiology, you should not be planting churches. Seriously, you shouldn't even be evangelizing if you don't have an ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. If you go back to the reformers, Luther, Calvin, as well as the, the so-called radical reformers of the Anabaptists, you'll find that surprisingly, they have a gloriously robust ecclesiology that had far more in common than they had that, that separated them. So you pray it, but you also sing it. Now, I've only said this as strongly as this once before, but I'm saying it here. The songs that we sing, go back, revisit them, and look at how many personal pronouns there are in them. What are we doing every time we do that? We are feeding this monster of individualism. We're saying the most important thing here in this great story of redemption is you as an individual. And you're there being resourced to sing your praises to God. Now again, it is gloriously true that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. This isn't minimizing it, but it's not, it's not merely what he did. he did. He did that, but he did far more beside. And when we gather as a church, let's sing corporate songs. Let's take out the personal pronouns wherever possible and put plural pronouns. Let's talk about we. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about our. Let's sing about them. Let's celebrate them. Because this is a way, if Jonathan Edwards was right, that we sing in order to excite the affection, this is a way that we can massage, that we can, as it were, send a, a smart bomb right into our affections that will explode to the glory of Christ as we realize that Jesus loved the church. He died for the church. He gave himself for his church so that through his church, he might display his glory to the world. So if you're, if you're a worship leader, if, if you write songs, please, 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 write new songs that sing plural. Go back to the old ones that you've been singing and just replace as many of the singular ones that you can. Get the people of God singing our identity in Christ together. So you preach and teach, you pray and sing. Thirdly, you model and mentor. You as leaders, get on and show people. Have, a, have an open house. I don't care how small your church is nor how big it is. Have an open house. See, one of the first things the Holy Spirit does when he blows into our lives is blows our front doors off their hinges. And he says, look, you know this home that was yours? Guess what? It's mine. I've just come in and I've taken possession of it. And I've given it you so that you might be a blessing to others. 
And if you're a leader, if you're a church planter, if you're a leader, then you need to show, you need to model this. Model what it means to be the family of God. That the terms we use, brother, sister, aren't just kind of polite or Christianese whereby we can speak to one another because we've forgotten one another's names. (laughs) That, That these are a glorious reality of who we are in Christ. We really are family. In fact, I am more of a brother to you, brother, than I am to my own physical brother who is not a believer. And I've never met you. And I'm a different color to you. And isn't that glorious? And the great thing is, in that new creation, I'm going to be white and you're going to be black. Because that's what displays the glory of God. It's not not some kind of side effect of the fall. It's a glorious part of God's intent. And that is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. So let's give it a meaningful expression by modeling it and mentoring it. Train younger men, bring them into your lives. Younger women, bring them into your lives as a family and show them and send them out to live this corporate shared life. And so you preach and teach, you pray and sing, you model and mentor, you structure and resource. That means you put your money where your mouth is as a church. That you don't just invest in buildings, you don't just invest in programs, no, you invest in in, in actually paying people's uh, salaries who can actually facilitate this kind of community life. Where you don't just create small groups where people go away and do a Bible study once a fortnight and share a cup of coffee together. No, you you invest in them so that they share their lives together, life on life, together on mission. Because it's through those communities scattered around your community, scattered around your city, into the darkness that the lightness of Christ brings. Let me give you a final text. It's here in the book of Ephesians. And it's in uh, chapter 4, and I'm finishing with this, um, where he says this... um, Sorry, chapter 5, where he says, uh, But when everything is exposed, verse 13, by the light it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is, is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's conversion language. How does it happen? How does Christ shine upon unbelievers so that they get saved? According to Paul here, the primary, the primary mission strategy of God is the church. And if you read back from there, you'll see just how corporate it all is. How shared life it all is. And you've got to model it, mentor it, you've got to structure it, you've got to resource it. And then fifth and finally, most important of all, preach and teach, pray and sing, model and mentor, structure and resource, repeat and repeat. Just keep doing it. Put it on repeat, because that's the song that we sing. And that's what makes the world beautiful. Let me finish with this analogy. I think I used this last time. Maybe that's a a false memory, but I do love it. It's from Greek mythology. And uh, you had the sirens uh, who were on the rocks, these uh, half-bird, half-women, and they would sing their songs to beguile the sailors to to sail towards the rock where their, their ships would be shipwrecked and then the loot could be carried off. And the different heroes in Greek mythology had different ways of, of combating them. So one, one of them, for example, would, would tie himself to, to, to the mast uh, and, and fill his ears uh, the, with, with wax and, and, and try and somehow avoid so he could give directions to his sailors not to go near it. But there was one who had a far better strategy, and this is our strategy, brothers and sisters. 
and that is it was to sing a better song. It was to play a more beautiful music so that his sailors weren't distracted by the sirens. And that's who we are as a church. With our communities, if you're a big church, a mega church made up of, uh, of different communities, if you're a small church, what is God doing in your church planting? He's creating a new community that will live, that will sing a more beautiful song, the song of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's called you to be a people for himself. He's revealed his glory to you so that... Not so that you'll have a big church. Not so that you'll make a name for yourself. Not so that you'll be able to make a living. Not so that you'll find approval from your peers. But so that we may declare the excellences of him. Called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen.